You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and I've been sitting on this one for a little while. Very, very pleased to finally release this episode recorded earlier this year with the absolutely brilliant Jinx Monsoon and her partner in crime, Major Scales. Now, this is a first for the podcast. Uh, Jinx Monsoon is a brilliant drag queen, uh, as is Major, some other kind of drag artist. Um, And... uh, it is it's slightly thorny territory at the beginning of the top of the, the very top of the interview and um, just for two or three minutes uh, when I think I may have asked the wrong question and got off on the wrong foot but we quickly recover and I am really really pleased to be bringing you this because Jinx and Major are both very very funny comedy performers they're completely within the wheelhouse of this show but at the same time this is a bit of a curveball so if you're someone and it's a very deliberate move on my part if you're someone who listens to this show and only wants to see tv comics that do tv shows you know straight straight kind of uh, club stand up or or if you have another predilection then take a chance on this uh, jinx is a wonderful character a very very interesting person to talk to and I really, you know, I wouldn't have had these guys on the show if I didn't think they were absolutely superb. So I know, well, to be honest, if you started listening to this episode, you're already in what I would regard as the top set of people who listen to all of the shows, not just ones with uh, people they recognise. If, of course, you're coming to this from a, from another audience, if you're a drag fan and this is your first uh, episode of The Comedian's Comedian, then welcome to you as well. But um, but for those, for the, the hardcore who might only be interested in a more narrow version of what stands up means they're going to miss out if they're not downloading this episode i'm really really pleased with this conversation we're going to be talking about commedia dell'arte we're going to be talking about reality tv we will spend a little bit of time uh, about half an hour into the show on rupaul's drag race which uh, jinx of course uh, did very well on some time ago um we'll talk about the nature of clowning about character self-expression you'll remember me saying if you're uh, if you're uh, no, what, what is that if you're a con completist thank you you'll remember me saying um that I think there's a lot comedy can learn from drag, and I absolutely think this is true. We'll talk a lot about uh, character and persona and what those things mean and the difference between finding an inner voice and contriving one. And at the end of the show, we get on to some really interesting issues of accusations of transphobia and uh, the difference between racism and racially charged jokes. So there is an absolute wealth of stuff here. I normally wouldn't... uh, Uh, do this much kind of it's not quite a disclaimer more wetting your appetite but I wouldn't talk this much normally at the top of the show I just want you to know that if you are someone who has a narrower definition of stand-up than might perhaps include Jinx a narrow definition of comedy then you are about to be proved quite wrong this is Jinx Monsoon and Major Scales Thank you very much for joining me, uh, Jerick and Richard. Do you do you prefer to be addressed as uh, Jerick or Jinx in a non-performative capacity? 
Um, it really doesn't fucking matter to me because um, Jinx has been my... I mean, I just get... I kind of hate getting asked that question. It's like, if you give yourself a superhero name, why wouldn't you want to be called by your superhero name all the time, you know? Sure, okay, okay. So, and also it's like to imply that uh, I don't like being called Jinx if I'm not dressed up as her. It's like I'm pretty damn proud of my creation. So sure. You can call me Jinx all the time. And also, it was my um, nickname way before I started to drag so um how did you I, get the nickname uh, because i'm very very clumsy <laughs> okay okay and and uh, you know uh, at the time that i got the nickname i was really heavy um into ballet and i had been doing ballet for a long time and i thought i was going to be a professional ballet dancer okay. but off stage like for someone who has pretty good kinesthetic awareness on stage i have horrible um, body bodily awareness off stage, and I I just trip over things and smack into things all the time, and I can vouch for this. <laughs> it's it's kind of like Murphy's Law with me. Okay, okay. So if we start then with the, uh, the I, I totally get what you mean about uh, wanting to be called by your superhero name. Mm-hmm. That's something I talk a lot on uh, about on this show. Is I I use that kind of uh, almost that framework of looking at. Uh, comedians or comics as 90% of my guests are from the point of view of a cre- something that they've created like mm-hmm. a persona that they've created we talk a lot about people's origin stories Do you know it's almost like everyone's got a different version of how they brought themselves to this life performing and travelling and, and all the rest of it and uh, I would ask as well you're the first drag queen that I've had on the show so please be gentle with me if I do say oh, yeah. something annoying oh, or no. you know, I'm, I'm outside there's nothing of the, you could say to annoy me I mean I've been I've been talked to by many, many people in the wrong way. I'm kind of keen to avoid doing that. No, 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 no. Um, What I'm trying to say is that, like, maybe about ten years ago, drag queens would be a lot more strict about calling them by their boy name when they're out of drag and then their drag name when they're in drag. But nowadays, drag has become such a such a respected art form that I think queens are proud to be called their drag name full-time. Like, if you see drag queens interacting with each other, um, and that sounds like we're a test subject or something. <laughs> if you ever were to see them talking. <laughs> yeah, in lab conditions. Um, but when, we, when we're when we together, like, I, I do a tour with um, six other drag queens every spring um, that I'm about to rejoin right after this show called okay. Battle of the Seasons. Yes. And, um... We all call each other by our drag name full time. Like, there's no calling each other by our boy names. And um, I think it's just kind of, it's like that. Like, you create a superhero persona. I at least think of it like, you know, why would the X-Men want to be called by their by their regular names, you know, sure. when they've created something so much cooler than themselves? <laughs> what is Wolverine's name? Even? Logan. 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 Yeah. Dumbass. And, and then I think later we find out it's James as well. I think that's his real, real name, which ruins Wolverine for me. <laughs> And is that is that the same for you, Richard, in terms of your your performative persona, or is it something you wear more lightly? You know, it's I, I do. We we all have a lot of names, so I don't I don't blame people for getting confused, especially if you're not in the theater community. You know, our stage names are Jinx Monsoon and Major Scales, and for the show that we're doing in London, our state our characters' names are yes. Doctor Dan and Kitty Whitless. Sure, but where our professional names. 
portraying those characters. So there's, <laughs> yes. there's always been some slight confusion around it. So I don't care what you call me, but uh, if it's in a professional situation, I like to be called by my professional name, generally. Okay. okay. But I've been called Richard so many times. Okay, I, can't, sorry, okay. I can't not, I cannot okay. turn to it, right? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So you introduce yourself to me as Richard, uh, but yes. you would rather be called, in a professional context... If we were doing a sh- if we were doing a sh- stage show right now, I'd I'd probably choose major. But major, since we're okay. but since we're sitting around our table and I got you water, I feel like <laughs> yeah. we're such good friends. You did, you did it very well and swiftly. <laughs> Thank you. Well, because even though um, Richard plays a a male character in the show, what he does is very much drag as well. Yeah, and um, and I think drag is just as much. Uh, a style of performance as it is an aesthetic of like dressing up as the opposite gender because I totally consider uh, when when Richard steps into major scales it's a it's a slightly elevated version of himself a slightly more drag version of himself and his physical transformation isn't the same as mine but his character transformation is is just that large and um, uh, when he steps into Dr. Dan Von Dandy, then it's definitely a drag character. Like, it's over-the-top drag performance style, but um, he's just playing the same gender. And we call that in the community being like a bio-king or a bio-queen. Okay. It gets gets complicated. (laughs) No, I'm interested to learn, because I saw the show last night, loved it, I thought it was fantastic, and I was one of the people that laughed at the band Von Bandy joke. Oh, good. Very much on my street. It really is a (laughs) 50-50. Absolutely. So, um... So I didn't know about bio-kings and bio-queens. I think that was the first time I'd seen someone who was a, a gender male playing a male character, but it felt absolutely clearly drag. Yeah. And it may be that if I think back to other uh, guests I've had on the show or other performances I've seen, then I, I, I think if I had seen uh, Dr. Dan performing, uh, Major performing as Dr. Dan, mm-hmm. outside of the context of uh, Jinx being in the show, then I don't know if the word drag would have occurred to me. Mm. Well, to me, I think drag, it refers just as much to kind of like an over-the-top, larger-than-life, and certainly for us, a farcical performance. Like, you know, we've set up a conceit on stage that's ridiculous, and it's like ridiculous to a level that I think that that constitutes it as drag. And um, the term bio occurs to occurs <laughs> refers to like when a female um, creates a female character, yeah. but she puts on so much of a persona, and it's related. I think it's the over the top performance related to a specific costume. Like Doctor Dan is a character from the nineteen twenties, and. You know, he's very physically different from Richard. And I think Richard takes his character to a drag level. And yeah. I think that is inherently because he's working with me. Because um, people say all the time, much to Richard's credit, um, Major's so much, credit, so <laughs> is that to be able to even like share a stage with a drag queen, you've got to have so much going on yourself that you don't fade into the background because the drag queen on stage will definitely trample anything in her yes. way. <laughs> it's like bringing a dog on stage. Well, that's interesting. I was going to say, the only time I've seen Jinx perform as Jinx live 
uh, was at the Christchurch World Buskers Festival, and you did in the I, I missed the vaudevillians at that at that, uh, at that festival, but I saw you with uh, Lily Lascala mm-hmm. doing Creep. You just did the number duet together, yeah. And it was I mean it was it was fantastic. And so last night, I think I was expecting. I didn't quite understand the brief of the show, the agenda of the show. It's, it's n- not expected that you might. <laughs> no, no, fine. <laughs> and you, and you do a very job. You, you very deftly set the territory at the beginning of the show. Um, but I wondered. So I thought, okay, I hear I'm watching Jinx, who I am familiar with from. Uh, I've followed that season of RuPaul, and uh, I've also seen you that that brief snippet live in Christchurch. So I'm familiar with some of some of the flavors of Jinx Monsoon. And then I thought this interesting. I, I almost found myself using the word metatextual to uh, <laughs> to, to just. Dis- yeah, yeah, I don't know if I can. Um, I don't know if there's any point. But um, but seeing Jinx, seeing a drag queen who is very much the superhero performing the character Kitty Whitless. Mm-hmm. So is there? Could someone come and see that show last night and go, okay, that's Jinx being Jinx? Because one of the tools in Jinx's arsenal is to go for that particular twenties. Mm-hmm. Style, you know, um, we you've kind of cracked it without us having to explain it to you, mm-hmm. but um, so we both exist as human beings, mm-hmm. and then we firstly, <laughs> okay, layer, inception layer one, we're definitely huge, and then um, we both have our drag personas, which is Jinx Monsoon and Major Scales, and then um. And then one step further is Kitty Whitless and Dr. Dan Von Dandy. It's like a, the character played by a character. Okay. Um, I I mean, all of my... I have multiple drag characters that I've created, but Jinx basically is the base of, of all of them. So if I start with Jinx, if Jinx is just my base drag persona... Um, then all these other drag personas that I've created are kind of like branches from that tree. Okay. So Kitty Whitless and Jinx Monsoon share enough similarities that I'm always like, it's kind of like Kitty Whitless might have been Jinx's great, 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 great. Oh, we've always kind of theorized. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's a lovely way of thinking about it that maintains that kind of familiar Yeah, because it's like, Kitty Whitless is like if you transported Jinx Monsoon to the 1920s, yeah. that's kind of like what, what she would be, you know? like sure. uh, In a closeted relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right, that does kind of make sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I always think in because of course our drag personas are an extension of ourselves, and then these characters that we created are an extension of our drag personas. If that yes. makes sense, yes. And also, um, both uh, Major and I, uh, we both studied in school commedia dell'arte mm-hmm. um, clown form, and where. Uh, Jinx and Major are closer to our real life personalities. Um, Kitty and Dr. Dan are much closer to our clown forms. Like, Kitty and Dr. Dan are so extreme in the direction of being like drag, farcical, over the top characters. That, I mean, I think Jinx and Major could get along well in modern day society, but Kitty and Kitty and Dr. Excuse me, Kitty and Dr. Dan have no place interacting with real human beings. Okay, okay. <laughs> not so much. Well, I'd like, I, I, I would love to come back to that because something I'd want to ask you about is crowd work. And your crowd work, I thought, was phenomenal last night, both of your cases. Um, but and so I, well, that's, that's a definite topic for later on, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Crowd work, remember. <laughs> it's, on, it's on the list. Um, 
just mentioning it, I already want to launch into it, but no, we'll, we'll come no, back. No, no, we've got to save that. So, <laughs> so given that, um, like, my exposure to drag shows up until this point, which is almost entirely through Drag Race and getting hooked on that in a way that completely surprised me, uh, my partner was really interested in watching it, and so we watched it. And I, the first three episodes, I was thinking, there. I mean, there is nothing for me here. And then, of course, I got completely sucked <laughs> in and fixated on the rest it. of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so when I've been to see live drag shows, I have most often seen. I've seen Battle of the Seasons. I saw one of those in San Francisco, which I thought was incredible. Um, I've seen Latrice, and I've seen a couple of other queens at uh, the Black Cap, now sadly closed mm. in uh, in uh, Camden. And when I've seen those shows, that is a that seems to me to be a, a very different circuit and direction to you guys coming here to the Soho Theatre. Like I can walk past Gay just up mm-hmm. the road and see, oh, here are all the latest people who are on here, and perhaps you're you're playing there as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't then see the same names so much walking past the posters of the Soho Theatre. So I just wanted to talk about that kind of. Choice. I mean, to to it, it might be that I've dropped a ridiculous clanger there, and you're like, it's a world apart. Yeah, it's a world apart. We don't want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. it. No, I think I think a lot. I mean, that comes from from our own background. You know, some people started out as as drag queens, and, and that's the career path that they chose. And then some people, like like Jinx uh, and and myself, we have a big background in theater. We studied it um, in university and, uh, that's, that's a big part of our lives. So when we put our show together, we had these, Jinx had these drag things that she brought in and I had theater and music stuff that sure. I put into it and her theater stuff as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's just utilizing your talents and your, your passions, um, not every drag queen necessarily wants. has a, a theater show in them, maybe, and, and sure. they, 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 they're pursuing a different path, I guess. Um, I've been doing drag for 14 years, and I'm 28, so I've been doing drag half my life now. And uh, uh, when I was 14 years old and I started doing drag, it was just because I wanted to perform. And I went to this all-ages gay dance club, and there was a weekly drag show, and I kept trying to get into it as a boy, like doing like Bio King kind of drag performance. I wanted to kind of bring like mime to this drag club, basically, <laughs> and okay. um, try uh, try as I might, it never really picked. You up. remember the big drag, <laughs> the, the big mime movement? <laughs> Could I just before we go on with before yeah. we pursue that? What what was the instinct to take mime in there? Was it that you wanted to be part of it, but you didn't know the way in which you could be? I I wanted to be part of it, and I wanted to do something new, and I wanted to do something that required a talent other than lip singing to the songs. Okay. Um, because not that there's anything um, wrong with that or any that that's not a talent in, in itself. I just I had training in other areas, and I was like, you know, I don't see anyone tap dancing. I don't see anyone miming. What if I combine the two and make that my act? And um, it was just uh, one night I put on drag instead of dressing up like a boy. And did one of my numbers like that, and the reaction was just over the top. And there was just something about having dressed up as the opposite gender and then doing what I do and like bringing something that people had never seen. For some reason, they didn't appreciate it when I was just a boy tap dancing and being yes. a mime. But when I added Jinx to it, yes. then it became something they really enjoyed. So for me, Jinx and drag work has always just been a way to create theater and a way to create like 
my performances um, whenever I'm not in a play or something, you know? It just keeps me performing and keeps me active because I just, I really love being on stage more than anything else. It's really just finding new ways to get people to look at us. Yeah. So this is Jinx and Richard. Uh, Fantastic to speak to them. I'm really, really enjoying this. I I talked a lot about the show at the top of the episode, so we'll get straight back into it after these messages. And they're messages from you. Um, This is from a listener called Josh, who is a photographer. And he says, there are countless examples in the podcast where the word comedian could easily be replaced with the word photographer or other creative professions, he says in brackets. And the advice still holds true. The word gig could be replaced by the word shoot or crowd could be replaced for target audience. You get my point. He says it's been really inspirational to hear so many stories from different creatives, particularly their more challenging moments. And their advice has helped make me in doing what I do more comfortable, more relaxed and I think crucially happier. Brackets, something I know you pay special attention to in your podcast. Well, thank you, Josh. I hope so. Um, I suppose... A lot of people say this, you know, we've got dental lecturers and and artists and cake makers and all sorts on board. And I I hope that this show does have a wider ramification. It was never my intention to to be super specific about only comedy. I suppose in the way I see the world, comedy is just is but one frond of of a lot of creative endeavours. Um, that third metaphor seems to have ended mid-sentence, but um, I'm really pleased that people are, are using the show like this. So I would extend my remit if you are someone who's enjoying the show and is unable or unwilling to donate and you wish instead to contribute to the show by sharing it with a friend. Remember, it's not just comedy fans. A lot of people who are interested in psychology, in human beings, in other creative walks of life might also get something from this so spare them a thought as well um another now listen i mentioned last time um that i with two things one i said i will go and see ken dodd but he always works weekends and i've got to work some of you have contributed already to the ken dodd fund to the extent that if i get another couple of pence in there there is uh, there is no way I cannot reasonably take a, a weekend evening off and go and see the man. So I'm, I'm hoping to do that after the Edinburgh Festival in September this year. Um, so I, I should also probably start getting in touch with either his people or his self and, uh, and find out the best way to go about talking to him. I know he doesn't uh, consent to interviews all that easily, but I'm fairly sure we can uh, convince him. But not just uh, a mention of the Ken Dodd Fund. Um, this is rather lovely. This is from a listener called Callum, uh, who says, Good morning, Stuart. I listened to your latest podcast yesterday, Walking the Dog. I loved it and decided to do one-upmanship and give you £101. Now, if this if this were to continue, I would not be upset about it at all. You remember I said uh, the last episode that I, I mentioned the, the biggest donation that week was £100 from a listener, which is um, just over 50 pence a show and very, very much appreciated. Um, I don't normally mention the specific amounts of money, but if it causes things like Crazy Callum and his one-upmanship to start happening, then I will do it more. The current leader, the head of the leaderboard, to beat this week is £101. Um, he says, I wasn't able to, to label this for your Ken Dodd fund, but please treat it as such. Well, you are actually able to label things. When you make a one-off donation, you can put a little uh, note to me. In the do- I, don't, I haven't been through the system myself for ages since I set it up, but there is a little place you can leave me a message. I mean, we could get in the habit of specifying what our donations are for, but let's leave it as either General or Ken Dodd for now. Um, So thank you very much to Callum. Thank you, everyone else that donated this week. Uh, And for those of you who set up recurring payments, all of those, as you know, can be done via comedianscomedian.com forward slash 
donate uh, if you would like to support the show. And I, I think something I, I said in a, an email back to a listener this week, um, I used a turn of phrase which I preferred, I think, actually contribute to the show. I think that's, it's not just about donating, but the fact is your donations make this show happen. Um, I still don't carry adverts. That's not a lifetime guarantee. And as, as you've heard and may hear in future, I will occasionally branch out into uh, sponsorship of specific episodes if there is a, a, a comedy form or product or item, an artifact, if you will, that I think is is, is the right fit. Um, so I'm not swearing it off forever. And of course, I reserve the right to change my mind. But in the meantime, uh, there is uh, there's no advertising on the show as a rule. And I exist entirely via your contributions. So if you would like to contribute, uh, you can send me 50p a show, a pound a show, a recurring donation of one, two, five, ten or more pounds a month. Um, or you can uh, just pick a figure and send me how much you'd buy on a bottle of wine if you were going around someone's house on their birthday when they'd just come back from five years away. So uh, feel free to do that at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. Get in touch, info at comedianscomedian.com or indeed via Twitter at comcompod. And um, there's a note here. Oh, mention the Edinburgh show. Oh, Jesus, yeah, of course. Oh, two things to mention. Something quite exciting. You came through, you came on the journey with me as I recorded an episode of uh, the Russell Howard's uh, show, Stand Up, Russell Howard's Stand Up Central on Comedy Central. And it's coming out soon. It's going to be uh, released on Wednesday. I'm going to double check for you now exactly which Wednesday. I think it is. It's Wednesday the 13th of July. So in just a couple of days from now. Um, and that's at 10 o'clock on Comedy Central. So tune into that and you can hear me doing some stuff. I'm, I mean, you can hear me do the opening joke from this year's show, which has since grown on a pace and does re- rely on a reveal that I'm slightly frustrated to have given away. So if you see it and then come and see my Edinburgh show, which is, as we know, at 3.45pm at the Liquid Rooms Annex, accessible via Victoria Street only this year, if you know your Edinburgh uh, cartography. Um, that is 3.45pm daily throughout the Edinburgh Festival for free, but do bring money. And remember, ComCom redacted some special secret shows Tuesdays at 6.40pm in the Banshee Labyrinth Chamber Rooms. You'll have to find those yourself. That's part of the, the adventure in getting there. I'm not going to give you any map information. It's simply the Banshee Labyrinth Chamber Rooms. I mean, chamber and rooms in the same thing? Banshee and Labyrinth, who knows? But the point is, if you come and see, compared to what, the Edinburgh show, uh, then the first joke, you will have a little bit of extra information from the material I do on Russell Howard, which also includes some stuff on my grandmother's dementia um, that uh, that I put in the set uh, after much thought, um, some stuff from last year's show, which I will eventually release. Of course, uh, you can still get extra life uh, on my Bandcamp page, Bandcamp Comedians Comedian, or uh, via comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop. And you can still download Break Glass in Case of Emergency as well. That's all the chat for now. Thanks to Josh and Callum and everyone else that has uh, been getting in touch. Um, I really appreciate all your emails, so keep them coming. And uh, thanks for all you. Everyone's been loving the Shappy episodes, the Funby. I've had so many. Oh, Funby, what a lovely man. Um, he's, he's one of those guys now. Whenever you mention uh, comedian Damo Clark, amongst other comedians, everyone has to stop for a minute and go, what a lovely bloke. Well, I think Funby is one of them uh, in podcast terms. So um, if you haven't got round to the Funby uh episode then you can do that or the Shappy episode which are the, amongst the most recent two people have been going nuts for on Twitter that's all for now more previews and stuff coming up but I'll mention them at the end if at all back to Jinx and Richard it sounds to me from what you're describing that you it's almost like you want to be out there doing whatever it is you want to do to perform mm-hmm. and actually you're sliding into drag 
which I suppose is that is that quite unusual than what I imagine is a lot of other drag queens going I can add a skill to my drag yeah you kind of came at it from a different way around well I mean it's it's actually for me it came from both directions because it was like that I wanted to um when Major and I started working together we were just doing like showcases at our at our college and um I just already had the skill of drag under my belt and I don't know you know I sing more like a woman than a than a man my singing voice is more in a female register so when we started creating these characters and started working on this like um this concept of doing ragtime covers of pop songs I it just naturally I was like of course I'll play the wife to this like you know can, cantankerous um, <laughs> vaudeville kind of uh, Doctor Pirelli's miracle elixir kind of guy sure. you know um, I don't know it it was like I always say when we create a new show because we've got like four shows between the two of us and I always say the next show we do I'm just going to play a man because I'm so sick of getting into drag all the time (laughs) but um, I know that that will never actually happen because I actually am quite passionate about drag and I'm quite passionate about that art form but really you know like for me to get on stage I'm going to want to do everything in our theater arsenal so it's not enough for me just to play a drag character I also want to play a a drag character from the 20s and I want to sing and I want to do all these like weird bits throughout the show so it's I, I don't know I always say there's no theater without drag for me and there's no drag without theater for me because if I'm just like solo performing in a drag show my my number is going to be inherently much more theatrical and involve live singing and part of that's just me showing off it's like you know I'm a drag queen who can sing effectively like a woman and I have a huge comedy arsenal in my belt so that's what I'm going to do in my drag performances and then when we create our theater um, pieces it's like I just happen to be an actor who can effectively play a female a, a, a female character and I'm gonna I'm gonna do that you know because it's a special skill that I have that not a lot of people do so it's you know both things my my love of theater enhances my drag and my love of drag enhances my theater so for someone who is very definitely an artist who's coming to this the whole the whole landscape of drag and creation theater you're coming with like a definite thing that you want to do and a thing that you want to say Mm -hmm. I would imagine it was hard to to make the decision to go on Drag Race to get to hand over the reins to mm. uh, to another editor whose job isn't necessarily to make you look as good as they can. Yeah, I mean I've been through a, a, a similar but microscopically similar process with a, a reality stand up kind of like you know Master Chef for stand ups, yeah. uh, which quickly turned into the X Factor for stand ups. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I found as a, and I think I probably out of everyone on that show had the biggest problem with it. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, but I I need to make my my decisions and my artistic decisions and they're constantly being challenged and I, I felt very hounded all the sort of constant interviewing and get back in the taxi so we can retake that entrance again that idea of giving up that much control did you were you nervous going into Drag Race that you would have to be at the, the whim of an editor yeah I got into Drag Race in season two like season one when it first came out my thought was why the hell would I want to watch 
more drag queens, you know, like, <laughs> um, because I worked in the drag circuit and it was, you know, like my summertime job, like when I would have be on summer holiday from, from university, I'd go home and just pick up my old drag jobs. So, of course, I didn't want to watch drag queens on TV because I felt like I got enough of it in the dressing room every night. <laughs> um, and then when I started to notice that, like, the aesthetic of the show itself is very campy and very game show oriented, I got really sucked into that element of it. And then, then of course, you get sucked into the drag queen drama and you want to see these girls, like, duke it out and stuff. But... Um, to go from season two and it took me until season five when I finally felt like I should audition for it. And we're talking about years of people telling me, why haven't you auditioned for this? You should go for this. And me just knowing like, I was so specifically kind of like a theater clown drag queen that I didn't care anything about like the glamour aspects of it. Yeah. And, um, and you even kind of see that transformation on my season of Drag Race, I go into it very decidedly like, oh, I don't give a shit what I wear and I don't give a shit what I look like because it's all about the performance for me. And it was RuPaul that's like, you know, if you bring your aesthetic up to a higher level and to a more glamorous level, more people will pay attention to what you have to say. Because if you're not as jarring to the eye, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. more people will want to, like, see what you're doing. Um... So, for me, going on Drag Race, there was almost this moment where I felt like, would I be a sellout to my art form if yeah, I go okay. on and try to push it through this, this, um, you know, this meat grinder of the, of the drag world, you know, and open up myself to all this um, critique about my, my drag aesthetic when all I really care about is my drag performance, you know? Sure. But it was totally worth it, and even though, you know, giving up control was really, really hard to do, and giving up, like, being in control of the start-to-finish product, you know, um, I just had to keep reminding myself I'm doing it to take my career to the next level, and to show people that, like, with the skills that I have, you know what I'm wearing and the style of my hair and the style of my makeup, eventually you're all going to find that to be secondary to my performance. Yes. And um, so it was my transformation on show was about like appeasing the, the drag aesthetic um, side of it so that I could take my performance to the next level. And I guess because I was so focused on that, I didn't really worry too much about being put through the meat grinder of reality TV but um, I also went into it knowing like you have to go into it very sure of your goals and very sure of who you are so that when they start playing those mind games on you you at least have your defenses built up you know <laughs> yeah right I mean it sounds like that was I mean how long ago was that sort of three or four years it's ago it's like four years since yeah. I filmed it yeah so you were 24 at the time and mm -hmm. that's an incredibly uh, sort of rigorous mentality mm -hmm. within which to go into a, an environment where I, I guess some of the, the girls going into a drag race are thinking now's my chance do yeah. you know what I mean and they're just taking it at face value like oh the spotlight will be on me and I will show everyone mm -hmm. what I got whereas actually you were approaching it thinking 
these are my goals this is what I want from it this is how much I'm prepared mm-hmm. to give and this is how much I'm not well it was after after major and I graduated I got a lot of work right away out of college and um so I was in like three plays in a row and in those plays I played um female characters and male characters like um in Shakespeare and uh, in a Brecht play Three Penny Opera I like in the same show I would play a male character and a female character throughout and switch back and forth and then the work just kind of dried up all of a sudden like after my three plays that I did all you know in rapid succession then I just didn't get work for a long time so of course the second the theater work dried up I went right back to drag and I kind of reached the level in Seattle where I was like you know, I uh, I worked at a showgirl show. I kind of learned a lot more about the glamour aspect of drag and kind of taking the aesthetic over the top and stuff. And I just felt like I reached the point in Seattle where I was like, "This is gonna be this is gonna be where I plateau in Seattle." Mm-hmm. And if I want to take this further, and if I want to have the kind of career I know that I'm destined for basically uh, <laughs> uh, I have to get a larger audience like okay. and basically what Drag Race did is I think I could have gotten to this place where like I think Major and I could have kept working the circuit and then maybe have gotten ourselves to the Soho Theatre in London without me having gone on reality TV, but we'd probably be like five years, maybe eight years older. It's, you yeah, know, sure, sure. <laughs> I it think can we save time. Right? Well, we definitely would have had to take a much slower, methodical path to where we are right now. And I just kind of saw. I mean, I'm so passionate about drag that, of course, I'm very proud of my accomplishments on Drag Race, and I couldn't be happier being the season five winner. But I also saw Drag Race as a shortcut to take my theater career and my drag career to the place where I really, really wanted it to be. Yeah, and that's that's interesting because that's not so much a game plan as such an overarching, such a perspective on the whole thing that you go, well, this is, you know, I'm going to gamble maybe mm-hmm. a certain amount of self-respect if something goes wrong and I crash out in an early round. Oh, That's a good of a risk, I would imagine, for anyone going on that show. It was my biggest fear because... You know, as a drag performer, it's it, that show can really damn you. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, uh, it, but it's it's not that the show does it; it's that your reaction to being on reality TV can really damn your career after that. If you if you don't kind of know exactly what you're going into it for, you know. Sure. And I think, yeah, the queens who go on to it just because they want that moment in the spotlight. I mean, that's great. But if you don't have, like, if you don't have a clear objective and the, like, and the absolute, like, awareness in your mind at all times that you could be eliminated and it could be for something completely ridiculous, you know, I went into it saying, like, if I get eliminated first, this money that I spent on this and all of this time that I took preparing for it and all of these things that I've had to, like push aside and and manipulate just to get on to the TV show. Um, If I go home first, then it would feel like all for nothing, you know? And of course that's not true. You know, like lots of queens can go on it for one or two episodes and still have a great career afterward. But you really have to like... 
I think it's just about knowing your skill set and then not being so up your own ass that when they ask you to improve in one area that you go, oh, I don't need to. You know, I'm perfect. (laughs) You need to go into it knowing you're not perfect because the TV show is not looking for people who are perfect. It's looking for people who have somewhere they need to, an obstacle they need to climb in order to get to where they want to be. A journey they can make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely, I mean, that's always one of the, one of the tools you need in your back pocket is you need a secret skill. Mm -hmm. You need a stunning revelation about your, about your home life. (laughs) (laughs) And you need the sort of the, the, I suppose you need to have the flexibility to go, what journey do we think I'm on? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll go on that journey. You know, you need to be able to work with them, I guess. It really has, it seems like it's become for the show that once you're once you're saying your coming out story, that's probably going to be your last. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, quite a fun way to watch the show is to to try and pick up on those kind of eddies and those mm. currents of narrative mm-hmm. and go. Well, now that we're seeing this, they're either going to win or they're out. Yeah. On yeah. turn six, you know. And mm. and you maybe know this having experiences yourself, but you know, there's there's that golden halo after doing the show where you have the publicity behind you and you have uh, the you know, world's attention to a certain sure. extent, and it's what you can do with that to uh, t- to extend that past. That's game. like the real game. Exactly. Once you've done the introductory game, then it's like the long game. And yeah. luckily, you know, Jinx after the after the show ended, we she and I had these talents behind us where we thought, well, we can. You know, she can do these drag shows, and she can also do these theater shows, and we yeah, can, we have absolutely. this backstock of work that we put in, in in college. So this kind of conjures up an image of you, Major, sat at home watching the most recent episode, going, "Okay, let, let's let's dust down this script because <laughs> this one could travel if Jinx stays in." Yeah, right. Well, we we had the vaudevillians under our belt for a while in okay. some form or another, um, and when. Drag race started happening. We thought, okay, well, this this is something yeah. we could possibly yeah. you start. Start strategizing. We can play these theaters. Yeah. Episode eight. Maybe we can play these theaters. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it wasn't even that. It wasn't even that like conscious of it. It no, was no. just um, when I came home from filming Drag Race, um, I I did tell Major like you know as soon as we possibly can. I want to try to pick the vaudevillians back up because we had put it to bed for about a year at this point. Um, We had started doing the vaudevillians about seven years ago now. Um, And uh, we had put it to bed for about a year in Seattle because the venue that we performed it at had gone out of business. I got really um, uh, knee-deep into doing this showgirl show that I hosted, and it was taking up most of my time. So there wasn't a lot of time for us to do our cabaret shows. But, um, so when I came home from Drag Race, I definitely told Major, you know, I want to get us back into doing the vaudevillians. I just don't know when we're going to have the right opportunity. And then lo and behold. Well, it was seven months later. Yeah, it was <laughs> comparative lo and behold. <laughs> I, 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 after I won Drag Race, I left home for about seven months, and I was just on tour nonstop. And then finally... Um, the call came from New York uh, uh, at the Lori Beachman Theater, which is where we did our first like resurrection of the Vaudevillians um, after Drag Race. They called me. They wanted to book me one night only for uh, like an evening with Jinx style show where it was just me and a piano player 
doing my repertoire, basically. Okay. And they just wanted it to be very much like, just sing all the songs you like to sing, and we'll just get people in to hear you sing and stuff, basically. And um, they said they knew that I worked with a pianist um, in Seattle and that I was fully welcome to bring him with me. And I was like, well, if you're already bringing him, rather than doing an evening with Jinx, why don't we do the show The Vaudevillians? Mm -hmm. And they really didn't like it because they knew I'd be playing a different character. Yeah. And they thought that that would really deter the audiences from coming. What they didn't know is that because the drag race fandom now is so obsessed, <laughs> like it's uh, it's such a strong cult following that like everyone in my fan base already knew about the vaudevillians because there were little clips online and there were all kinds of articles of us doing it in seattle so you know after i wore down the producers and told them just take a chance on this vaudevillian show so they opened it up for one night it sold out within like an hour so then they added another night and then soon they were adding weeks to the performance run and then soon my manager was like Canceling everything because we were getting like booked for like months in New York doing this show, and it was such a great opportunity for us. And at the end of at the end of it, we had been there for four months. We lived in New York for four months with very little warning that we were going to do so. <laughs> it was a bit of a surprise, but a good way to quit my um, my my office job. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask what what your office job was? Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it was paper pusher basically. <laughs> but I did get to make that call to my boss of saying. I'm afraid I can't come back. Broadway needs. <laughs> Incredible. It, it does. It does sound like from what you're describing there that you haven't put a foot wrong in terms of taking the chance on a reality show, smashing it, and then managing to leverage that success into your dream project well, you that know, you were doing anyway. You, it's hard to say whether or not we've put a foot wrong at any one point, <laughs> but we've definitely we've got our story that we're that we feel like we want to tell with our lives and we're following the trajectory that that's sure. allowing us, you know, pursuing the options so, that so, we have available. So for the for the some listeners, professional performers and so forth, who might be uh, it, I mean, it seems unlikely, but they might find themselves in a similar position. What were were there any decisions that you made along the, the specifically the the kind of the year or two years after Drag Race? Mm -hmm. Were there any decisions that you regret or that you thought actually I could have done that with you know more deftly or more productively? Um, I think one regret that I have is. Uh, and this applies more because Major and I also do shows where it's Major and Jinx. And it's much more casual and much more what you'd expect from a, a drag queen's, like, one-woman show, you know. Um, or a drag queen's, like, a cabaret review with her music partner, her um, uh, Barry Manilow to her Bette Midler. But <laughs> But um, I didn't even realize it was happening until it was actually just about like nine months ago that I really like went okay that's exactly what happened um, and it's that the TV show that I was on pays so much attention to the artist creating the character and then the challenges set up um, we kind of create a new character for each challenge you know or create a version of our drag persona for each challenge so I feel like with my season of Drag Race they were so focused on 
my Cinderella story and my story of like overcoming the, you know, the naysayers in the room um, and the underdog kind of pulling through and winning at the end. You know, they were so focused on those elements of my story that they didn't focus on my actual drag character that much. And Jarek Hoffer, the artist, is the person you really got to meet on Drag Race. And Jinx Monsoon, the drag persona, just kind of fell by the wayside. Yes. So I felt, and it became a, a huge amount of pressure to me, when I felt like my audiences were coming to see Jarek, but I was dressed as Jinx. And the main difference being that Jinx is very vain and egocentric and very self-absorbed. And my shows before Drag Race were all about me just tearing the audience apart and being in just a foul-mouthed, like, horrible bitch, basically. But then, like, always making it funny in the end. Like, saying just absolutely horrible things and then having that one joke at the end that makes it okay to laugh mm -hmm. at, you know? And just being completely irreverent and terrible to people. And that's why I created Jinx. Because me, the person, is the opposite of that. And I needed an outlet for all of the, like, <laughs> bitterness that I have towards stupid people, basically. That's what I created Jinx for. And um, so when I started touring with Jinx post-Drag Race, I felt like she started morphing into Jarek. And I felt like I started feeling like I had to give people this, like, inspirational speech in every show and give people this, like, you know, the same kind of feeling they got when they watched me on Drag Race. And it really compromised my character for a while. And I feel like I took kind of a dip with my confidence on stage and I became more obsessed of portraying this, like, this um, goddess idol figure. Oprah yeah. <laughs> Oprah yeah, okay, okay. And Major, you know, Major was there with me through all of it because we did versions of our, um, we have an album together, so we did concert versions of our album and it just never really, like, had the same spark as the Vaudevillians. So the Vaudevillians, you know, still totally the show that we created, but anytime I was Jinx on stage, I felt like she had kind of lost some of that um, je ne sais quoi that I had some possessed of the, before. Sort of the, the acidity? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, it was this year in Provincetown, um, uh, this last summer in Provincetown. Um, Which is in the States. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a little artist community where like drag queens put on cabaret shows for three months and it's just like all drag, all theater, and all gay party town. Think, think Fire Island. <laughs> or whatever. I don't know if you guys have a Fire Island in I'm, London. You've you caught me smiling and going, okay, not yeah, yeah. Fire Island. Okay, oh. so. <laughs> little, little, little party gay summer town. It's I like, suppose. it's a resort town. It's yeah. where gays go to vacation for the summer. Okay. And Fire Island's more party oriented, and Provincetown is more like theater and culture oriented. Okay. But it's like everyone goes to work there for the summer and then you get this rotating, like every week it's a new fleet of drunk gay assholes coming in to party. <laughs> okay. you know? Some of them are very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, uh, we did this show, um, we were doing the uh, concert version of our album and you know, we knew we had to like kind of fill it with something more than just singing the songs because they're expecting body humor and they're expecting like 
crazy stories and stuff. So basically, we just like... I kind of decided as the person doing more of the talking in that show to just like relate all of the songs in our set list to my sex life and explain how my sex life has changed since Drag Race or what my sex life was before Drag Race and things you wouldn't guess about me. And there were some inspirational moments, but mostly it was just filthy, filthy stories from my bedroom. And... Great title. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be a book. (laughs) So um, after about a week of doing that show, it started morphing, and then I started remembering what Jinx was like before Drag Race. And I feel like I just kind of clicked back into it. And since then, we've just been on the uprise again, even with um, our Jinx and Major stuff. You know, like everything's gotten a new... fuel inside of it again and I think it's because I've reclaimed Jinx from the reality TV show like it's now enough years away from when I was on TV that I can kind of remind people of what Jinx really is you know and now my fan base knows even if they get because I had people before and I think this is why I got in my head about it in the first place but I had people come to see my show in Seattle before I had done this kind of like transformation into the softer jinx, um, I would have people come up to me afterward and be like, I saw you on the show and you're just, you were my favorite. And I came here just expecting this sweet, demure drag queen. And then you called everyone, you know, pussies on stage and stuff like that. And I think I let that get into my head. But, um, you know, it's far enough away from the TV show now that I think people know. Jarek is still alive, and, and that yeah. person they saw on TV is still alive. And, but. and is capable of responding to, presumably, an email from a troubled team. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now it's like, when you come to see my show, expect Jinx Monsoon on stage. But then, you know, right after the show, I just go right back to being the sweet person that everyone expects, you know? If that makes sense. And, <laughs> and did you see Jinx wrestling with this oh, over yeah. the period of with the... We we yeah we we talked about it a bit, um, but it, it was clear you know Jinx made that decision, and you could definitely see the the change in Carrie. But before she talked about it, were you as someone who on stage is in a you know a unique position to to witness something like mm. that, to witness a kind of a change in flavor of your performing partner? Mm-hmm. Were you aware of it before she was? Well, I I was not no, um, but but it's always one of those things you can look back and say, oh yes, you can see, you can yeah, really okay. see the journey there. Um, but uh, I think that's partly because I know Jarek off stage, so sure, you know course, I, I I see I see the I see Jarek and Jinx, and I, I think of them as the same person, just bringing out different parts of the personality. And when we were talking before about sharing the stage with a drag queen and having to be, you know, the, this. Not that you had to create a Bioking character, but that had you not, there would have been the danger of fading mm. into the background. I just want to talk about that experience of, of playing not the straight man, but kind of the no, straight man. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. It is very much the straight man character. And does that satisfy in you the same sorts of things that Jinx is having satisfied in herself yeah. performatively? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. It's, <laughs> is there uh, a kind of a self-flagellatory <laughs> aspect to it? We're like, oh, you get all the punchlines. <laughs> you know, you well, get the lion's share. Of the you, know, you know, that's... It's funny because there's always... Hmm, uh, 
Oops, it left me. <laughs> There's always that aspect of obviously you can't. It would be very difficult to upstage a drag queen during her, a show that she's doing or during a show that you're both doing. But I think that there is something, at least two major scales in the way that I've that I've created him in that uh, maybe he doesn't get the punchline, but he gets the expression that comes after that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, you know, also comes from our clown work is like you receive something from someone, you send the reaction back to the audience. So if she mm-hmm. has a punchline, that affects me and I still get a punchline. You line. get to be he who is slammed. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Sure. You get to play that reaction. So, you know, she's the one who maybe manhandles me on stage, but I get to play the person who flails around <laughs> in response to that, which uh, I'm I'm very happy to get to to perform as, you know. There's something there's something very satisfying about uh, setting up someone else to to do a good performance, you yes. know, and I think we've worked together for so long that we know exactly how to push each other's creative buttons and performing <laughs> buttons to to try and give ourselves the best. Yeah, you and, know, and were you we were you at any point? And feel free to say no. no. Um, <laughs> feel free to say no after I've asked the question. Um, were you at any point when you saw Jinx progressing and accelerating through Drag Race? Did any part of you think? Oh, this might go too well. Do you know, this might if, if Jinx wins, she could you know decide not to do the Vaudevillians anymore because of all the pressures that would be, well, or all the opportunities that would be. There. Well, for that, that not so much because we we had put the Vaudevillians to bed for a little bit. Oh, sure, but uh, I, I was certainly aware that that we had plenty of work that we'd done in the past, and um, you know. I knew that she was already comfortable with me as a pianist, definitely. So I, I, I figured, not not to give myself too big of a head, but I figured my name would be in there where, okay. where other talent needed for shows, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, it, it is it is nice that because of the vaudevillians and you know again again there's a bit of a halo effect coming from the the television that she's gotten for for me to be able to perform in the ways that I do now. Um, now that she's able to do solo stuff and big things, I've been lifted myself, and you know I have things in my musical career that have benefited from it. You know, outside of the shows that we do, um, it's it's sort of like you know the Vaudevillians on Broadway was my Drag Race, and how yes. can I, yeah. how, how can I how can I leverage that yeah. that attention that I've got? Sure, you know? well, just in a different scale. The thing with the thing with Major and I is that um, when what happened first is that we became friends and we decided to live together our sophomore year of college or no junior uh, junior, junior year junior year of college sorry that those That's, words mean nothing yeah to <laughs> uh, third year of college um, we decided to live together just as friends and then it was through living together we realized just how similar our our tastes in music our taste in comedy our taste in in movies and certain genres we also play the same video games you know we just found all these similarities between us just so, just a very quick tangent what video games do you play oh uh, well uh, I play like mostly magical fantasy games like okay. Dragon Age and oh nice Skyrim. But we've both been doing a lot of Fallout recently. Fallout oh, 4. And, yeah. I can't buy the Lexus Fallout. I've got a baby. And uh, I can't, I can't no, buy it. I can't go and raise my child. <laughs> There's no time left anymore. You wanna, you'd want to be able to feed that. Yeah. No, yeah. They, <laughs> this game will take over your life. But. Yeah. I, I really don't want to have like a, a Fallout baby who's doing yeah. fine because I'm doing a lot of side quests. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my baby. son in the game yeah. is doing well. Um, but we... Uh, uh, so... 
even when we're not doing the vaudevillians, we do have like our show Truth or Dare, which is um, our concert version of our album now with ten times more sex stories. Uh, <laughs> um, he very much takes a, a back seat in that show. Like he doesn't have as much dialogue with me. He's there to support me on stage, but even then. Major has such a stage presence because of his theatrical training that at no point has he ever just been my pianist. Yeah, sure. He's also, he composes songs, uh, he composes original music. Um, so, say I hadn't ever wanted to do the vaudevillians after Drag Race, say that we didn't take that route, I always knew he was going to be the one writing songs. Well, I'm no good at writing songs. So I'd like I like to say that we collaborate. We collaborate in the sense that I go, I want a song about this. Mm-hmm. And I really like... Well, and then once he's writing it, then I continue to like feed him little bits where I'm like, well, let's take it in this direction and let's give it this kind of a feel. But he always... We always speak the same language. So like the second I'm like... I want it like this, but you know how Bette Midler sang that one Bertolt yes. Brecht song, and it sounds like this. Our our song has to possess that same kind of energy, but be a completely new song. And he completely understands it, and he turns around, and in another week, like, we've got this new song. So he was always going to be my creative partner, no matter what. And I have other people, <laughs> like in Seattle, I have my friend Nick Sahoya, who's a stand-up comedian, and we've been working together on, like, sketches for years. So we always knew, like, if I ever get the opportunity to create my own sketch show, he has to be there with me, too. So Major was like that for, for my music work. Like, if I ever get the opportunity to create an album, which I did, um, it has to be with Major Scales. And so we totally did that. And luckily, we did also do the Vaudevillians, but... There was never a chance of him not being a part of my work because basically all I've done after the fame of Drag Race is take the people I already worked with and just take them there with me. Like my dressmaker and my wig maker from before and my best friend. My best friend has risen through the ranks. He he first traveled with me as my assistant. Then he got hired to be our tour manager for bigger shows and now he works for my manager, um, tour managing multiple queens at a time and um, stage managing these very um, big scale shows. And so like everyone I worked with before Drag Race, I continued to work with and we've all kind of had this. We've all kind of had this runoff. It's like a socialist bent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I took my gra- drag community with me yes. on my journey. And and lots of people are always like, oh, that's so nice of you. I'm like, that's not nice of me. It was selfish of me. It was yeah. selfish of me to insist that this person has to work with for me for the rest of his life, you know? It's, it's, it's smart, you know, business yeah. as well. Yeah, you yeah know, of course. You, of course. you make your contacts and... Uh, when you can use them, you use them, and you're helping yeah. each other when you do. Like, I'm glad that Majors had a great career since Drag Race, um, but I'm more glad that I've had my preferred composer um, yeah. work for me this for whole time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> I think there is something stand-up comedians can learn from the way that 
drag queens create their persona. Mm-hmm. And there is something stand-up comedians can learn in terms of the difference between something between you know we talk about finding your voice I don't know if there's an equivalent mm-hmm. sort of uh, um, I will, idiom in, uh, in, in drag but when we talk about stand-ups finding their voice you, you often see newer stand-ups who are contriving a voice and you can look at it and go that's not really you mm-hmm. you know that, mm-hmm. and, and obviously it's, it's never quite really us but you've got to know which, which dials to turn up the volume on mm-hmm. when, you, when you take your personality and um this is a very convoluted question. We'll get there. I, I'm following. I'm yeah, following. Okay. I'm liking the journey. So there is a specific uh, moment, and it was in season six, which I don't know if you went on to watch or mm. whether. Okay, so when Laganja Estranger mm-hmm. is basically being given a dressing down mm-hmm. by Michelle Visage and RuPaul, and because I think, and I've uh, I've never met her or seen her perform since, but it seemed to me from watching the show that Laganja had brought a lot of ideas about what she wanted to be, mm-hmm. about who her personality was. And something wasn't ringing true. And she basically got given this feedback that said, you've got to be yourself. Mm-hmm. And she was going, but I am being myself. Click, brrr, you know, yeah. all, those, all those kind of things. <laughs> and I think that was a, a really fascinating moment that I think is really interesting to, to apply to stand-up. Mm-hmm. Whereby you, you sort of see someone who has decided who they're going to be Mm-hmm. But they're in the midst of some people who. Do you see what I mean? I don't even know what yeah. the question is, but it's, the, it's no, about I, the difference between those, those two things. Well, the thing that I have to say about that, and, um, you know, of where, what I had a big thing with on my season of Drag Race that I had a few queens in the room who were like, I don't understand why you always have to play a character. Mm. And um, I had one kind of like arch rival um, on my season. We're best friends now, but um, <laughs> but like at the time, it was very much, she felt like I wasn't taking the art form of drag seriously because I always go the comedy route and I always go the like, character um, conception route whereas she felt very much like drag was her art form but it's just you know like she felt like I'm not creating a character this is just who I am and I happen to be dressed in drag but this is still me you know who, who are we talking about here Can Roxy say, Andrews okay, obviously yeah. was it, did I have another arch <laughs> <art tribal? laughs> tell her um, but, uh, glad to hear that you're friends now <laughs> yeah yeah oh I'm friends with all of them the second the show stops filming it's like it all never happened okay. it's like we all agreed that was the competition that's not us you okay. know um, but uh, it's that she didn't think that getting into drag she was portraying a character. She thought that it was just her, the person, wearing drag clothing. And I'm like, there's, you can't, you can't get into full drag, you can't do a head-to-toe transformation without having that affect you somehow and becoming some sort of characterized version of yourself. And I learned this in school um, with Major. All of our teachers, you know, like... The, the basis of our program was that you can get into your character either through starting on the internal and working on how this character feels and thinks and acts, and you really have to truthfully find out what that character feels and thinks and how they act and work from the inside, and then it will affect the form, and it'll affect how that character walks and all the aesthetic and all the physical as- attributes of that character. 
or you can work the other way around. Like if you know this character wears a three-piece suit and always has the top button buttoned up, try getting into that and see how that affects you internally. So you can either start from the inside and it'll change the outside, or you can start from the outside and it'll change the inside. But no matter what, the two both have to be married together and they both have to be truthful to the character. So if we take that concept and apply it to drag... Which, it's like, not, which not everyone does. Not everyone sure. does. But the thing is, they do. They all do it. They just don't realize it because they don't have the same comprehension of what's happening here. But when you get into full drag, and even Roxy Andrews, like even though Roxy Andrews is just an extension of who she is out of drag... As a boy, and I can't... This is what I'm talking about. I can't even remember her boy name right now. <laughs> okay. I have no idea what her real name is. And I've known her for years. I have no idea what her real name is. Um, uh, she would get into drag, and she would become a heightened version of herself. And to her, her she was just being herself. But yes. what she didn't realize okay. is that at the moment the wig was on her head, and the moment everything was in place, she clicked into this new person. So to go on stage... To be a drag queen, to be a comedian, you're going to create a character, whether you're conscious of it or not. You're going to create a characterized version of yourself. And if you think you're going to walk on stage and just be yourself, that's idiotic. Because no one wants to just see a normal person on stage. We want... Realism is fucking dead. We want to see a heightened version, something that justifies why this person is on stage as opposed to anyone else. You don't want to just see an accountant get up on stage. You want to see a character of an accountant, you know? Sure. So if you are... But it all has to be truthful, and it all has to start from a truthful, earnest place. So if you're going to go on stage and essentially be yourself, but be a heightened version of yourself, you have to... Just heighten yourself. You can't take someone else's character and put it on top of you and expect that to be the work. <laughs> I think, uh, and I think you can definitely see that in comedians who know their voice and who mm -hmm. know how to build on top of who they are. You know, your your Maria Bamfords, for mm -hmm. instance, who clearly she knows who she is and she's willing to show that warts and all and and make it bigger Absolutely. because yeah. that's more funny that's more affecting but it's clearly yeah. it's clearly not a character that she's putting on that's clearly a lived it in has something it's a, yes. yeah. a really yeah. good example actually yeah mm. yeah and it's that you so what i was saying about it can either start from the inside and change the outside or it can start from the outside and change the inside that connection has to be made you can't just put on a funny voice. You can't just go on stage and be like, I'm such a nerd. Here's how I'm a nerd. You know, like, and then just, like, say stereotypical Although I have nerd. seen that show. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's never going to be as entertaining as when you see someone doing something that's honest to who they are. You know, like, if you're going to just play yourself on stage, it has to go to a heightened level, but it has to remain earnest and honest and true to who you actually are. Otherwise, create a character and fully step into that character and let that affect you on stage. But it can't be... Uh, you can't take s 
like some fabricated character and then put it on top of yourself and then not marry the two and not connect the two because that's when we'll see through it and that's when you see someone on stage whether they're a stand-up comedian or a drag queen um, if they are doing something that you can tell right away is just something they've put on and they haven't really connected to it like if it's just a funny voice but there's nothing rooted within them to justify that funny voice the audience will see through it and it it comes off as very inauthentic and really unentertaining (laughs) I think in comedy that's worse than being not funny is being inauthentic I can absolutely watch someone authentic dying on their ass do you (laughs) know what I mean and like none of the jokes firing but you go you are doing the thing you are staying true to the thing Mm -hmm. you do and equally, I'm sure we've all seen comics and drag queens as well, when you've thought, as an, as an audience member, you've thought, I don't believe you. Yeah. And that's, that, I think that's the antithesis of it. So have, there, have you ever done anything as Jinx? Have you ever tried something on stage and then thought, that doesn't feel very Jinx? Does, is, how much of it is a process of, how much of it is trial and error and how much of it is prepared and a decision? Um, I don't know. I... With Jinx, I think, I mean, maybe early on, early on in my drag career, I tried everything. You know, I just tried anything and everything. This and is I the didn't. bacon strip years. Yeah, bacon yeah. strip. Um, well, bacon strip, uh, e- like, even before that. Like, mm-hmm. bacon strip, I was in my early 20s, and I had been going to college already, so I had been taking what I was learning in acting school and applying it to my drag at that point. I'm talking about, like, my teenage years. I just tried anything and everything. Jinx wasn't so much a conceived character as she was just, like, me in drag experimenting. And, um... But, yeah, I've done... I don't know. I can't pinpoint a moment where I've done something that wasn't Jinx on stage. I mean, I think the the Oprah drag thing is is kind of that. That you know? I mean, that was that was me trying to make Jinx into Jarek, or me trying to me trying to be Jarek on stage dressed as Jinx. And I think that was, you know, like I don't know that most of my fan base would have known that that's what was happening at the time. But the reaction, like, to go from the Vaudevillians for four months in New York and then compare that to me doing my solo gigs and feeling like, yeah, the audience is going nuts, but it's not that same electric, palpable energy as when mm-hmm. I'm, like, slapping a, gr- a guy across the face or something, you know, and and making these ridiculous, absurd, crass jokes, you know? Um, but it's like I... I think what happens nowadays more than anything is that I one joke might bomb on stage like and it's normally when I'm going a wall and I'm not working with my partner major scales and I'm not improving with him and I'm not really improving with the audience it's when I go rogue and I just like have this <laughs> random idea in my head and without even like giving myself a moment to think about it or getting myself a moment to work into it I'll just say it. I'll just blurt it out, and it, you'll hear the audience just like go, "Wait, what? The, what the fuck did she just say?" <laughs> she's, like, she's gone rogue. Yeah, <laughs> somebody stopped her. Well, I, I think there's definitely. I feel that way too about 
some of the th- jokes that I will think of for the things that we work on. You know, there's certain things a drag queen can say that other people can't, and I can't get away with saying certain things or sure. accusing certain people of certain things. <laughs> but I know that Jinx can. So if I think of a joke that's funny, but I can't, but it can't come out of my mouth, I'll say, "Try, try this." And, yeah. yeah, And sometimes it, it just works better. My favorite is though it. Um, we've worked together so long as sometimes there's a moment where I'll say something and someone from the audience will say something back and I'll start a sentence and then by the end of it both of us are saying it and this is like completely improv in the moment yeah. but we have so much of a similar comedy style that like sometimes we'll finish each other's sentences Sandwiches. on stage <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy <laughs> yeah the, well that was right because last the, the, the night before you came there was uh-huh. a guy who looked like Sigmund Freud in the audience <laughs> and um, yeah and I was like you look just like um, one of our friends from back in the day and from the stage <laughs> Major goes Ziggy oh, no, that's so great what a wonderful what an electric relationship no, to yeah. have when you're both when you're able to improvise together without cueing one another yeah, yeah. so let's talk then quickly about the just the writing when you're writing the jokes the one liners mm-hmm. we is there a? Do you sit down round a table and go right? We're going to write one-liners today, or do they are they all generated no. on stage? No, as far as the the writing part of it is concerned, we generate it between ourselves. I mean, it's a lot based in improv because we we both have improv backgrounds in ourselves. Uh, we find out what's funny and we say keep that or yeah. do you mean between yourselves on stage or between yourselves? Oh, oh before before we okay. do a show, you know, yeah. if we're putting a new show together, we we run through what we want to talk about or at least the gist of, of what we want to talk about and as we're talking through it we're we're finding out how it's going to come out you know okay. what what's yeah. funny what works for And is both that of are us. you are you pacing around a rehearsal room what does the environment look like Um no the environment's us at home and well we came up with the concept for the vaudevillians um under the influence of alcohol and um marijuana <laughs> And uh, <laughs> we don't. That's not a crucial element for us creating new work. Um, it can be for other people. But, <laughs> well, I mean, when we when we work at home, usually it's you know around my my keyboard, mm-hmm. and we've either had our drink for the evening or our toke, and <laughs> you know we can talk through what we want to do, and you know. I would pace if I wasn't at, at a at a bench, but um, <laughs> it, it's us working it through together, talking okay. things out, and finding out the best wording of it. Maybe we yeah. don't, maybe we. I mean, when was well, the, when did we first write the vaudevillians down? It, well, that's the thing is, um, for years we were performing the vaudevillians as kind of like a dinner theater show at a, at a restaurant. So there was no. It wasn't like a cabaret show. There wasn't like a, a strict flow to the show. It was. What it was, the way the vaudevillian started was we picked the songs first and foremost, and this has remained today like how we write our shows. We first picked the set list, and then for each song, um, we would say, So, like, what if we did Toxic by Britney Spears? How are we going to de- deconstruct it to make it sound like it's from the 20s or from the 30s or from that era? Then once we've found the way we're going to do that song, then we go, okay, now why are these two characters singing Toxic? And and then it's literally, we just start firing out our ideas, like maybe it's about blah, 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 blah. And then it, we landed on, maybe it's about Mary Curie, you know, like, and 
and we can feel when we've hit the right yes. idea. And then basically from that, we we used to have the benefit of getting to take it to this little dinner theater place once a week, just having a ton of ideas in our head, and we would just kind of work with each other on stage and work with the audience. There was no script. It was all improv and then the joke, we would know right away when a joke worked and when a joke didn't work. So we improved this show for like years. Um, and then finally, um, the Lori Beachman show happened. Like we had done quote unquote scripted versions of it earlier, but not to anywhere the same scale as when we had to do it at the Lori Beachman. So when we finally got you know, our show booked in New York off Broadway, we, um, we had to sit there and really like be critical. Like what are the jokes that work every single time? Yes. And what is the story that we're trying to tell? But can we give it some sort of an arc to make it seem like, you know, this is, this is a, this is a play. This is a show that you're going to see and not just, um, you know, music with talking. Yeah. Not something you're going to talk through, but something you're going to sit and watch from start to finish. And we were so used to audiences just kind of being 50-50 tuned into us, you know, that we had to find a way to create a script out of all of this improv material. And luckily for us, since we had been doing the characters for so long, we had just this huge arsenal. And the first iteration of the show in New York was just under two hours long. Now it's about an hour and 15, an hour and 20. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, you know, that's been like another two years of continuing to perform these characters and continuing to edit. And we finally have gotten to the place with the script where we're like, this is the script, you know, after six plus years, like this is the script of the vaudevillians one. So then we recently were commissioned recently, like about a year ago, um, (laughs) commissioned to do a sequel because basically we let it slip out to some producers in New York that we had an idea for a sequel. Oh, we knew what we were doing. Well, <laughs> I, I, now I wish we had enough. But like, what happened is we, we told them we had an idea for a sequel. And we thought we were just saying, like, when we're ready to do the sequel, okay. um, we'll, we'll let you know. But what happened is they really, really wanted it. And they really wanted to ride the wave of success from the Vaudevillians one. So we we worked really hard, and they set dates, and they gave us a timeline, and we worked really hard to create the show in time for the debut, and we just didn't have the years of improv to work it was, it with. It was a pressurized, you know, yeah. it's a very, difficult very second yeah. show yeah. syndrome, isn't it? When the first one is all your best stuff from all over yeah. the years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now, you know, we've done that show since New York, and it's still it's still becoming what it, yeah. it's going to be. What it we, uh, the, the last time we did the sequel show was in San Francisco, and we did it for a week. And in that one week, because we had done it um, for like three weeks in New York, and it started at a mushy kind of place, and by the Fetal end of it, level. yeah, <laughs> and by the end of it, we at least had the the skeleton of the show totally worked out. But I don't think either of us really wanted to be working out those kinks 
for a New York audience, but there was no other way to do it. You know, like we had to synthesize years of improv together. The one benefit being that we already had the characters and we yeah. already knew the characters really well. We had something to hang the ideas yeah. off of. You know? So we started again with the set list and we came, we knew the overarching theme of the show. So we created a set list meeting that theme, but the banter is, you know, like really, the majority of the show, even though, like, our show is, like, um, 65% singing, you know, it's all about the banter and the characterization. And, and a lot of the banter, absolutely, when you say the characterization, I, I noticed very early in the show, the jokes are very strong, but a lot of the time, certainly my favorite laughs, are the laughs you get from tones of voice from mm, yeah. from yeah. kind of these mad and outrageous pronunciations when you're doing the Ibsen yeah. at the end you know that whole section where you're you're sort of singing your way through the moves that you're making and yeah. that's and the, the, the accent that you're using there I mean I'm I, I obviously I know I'm very new to drag I'm like oh these might be references to things I'm not picking up on or equally it's just the flavour it's the kind of mm-hmm. the, the breadth of expression and that has. and I think that just that literally just takes time yeah, yeah. There's no you can't force that. You're like yeah. doing it over and over again. Come up with that in a yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, so like we did it for three weeks in New York. Um it it took baby steps along the way, but then we let it rest for a while and we let it digest for a while. And by the time that the sequel show had been picked up for a week in San Francisco, it was kind of like we had had enough time um, thinking about it that the second it got picked up, we were like, okay, here's what we're hacking. Here's what we're here's what we need to amp up. This is what still needs to change. And so then in that one week, it took a huge step forward. So now if, if New York gave us the skeleton, San Francisco gave us a little bit of the sinew and the, the, the cartilage, <laughs> we're, we're still waiting on the, um, the muscle matter and the skin. And, <laughs> um, and then the clothes. Yeah. <laughs> At some point. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll um, get there. <laughs> it took a huge step forward. It still, it still needs a lot of work because, you know, it just needs as much time as the first show. But, like... It's getting there, and um, all I'll tell you about it is it's the same characters, only this time Kitty's pregnant. Nine months pregnant, <laughs> and they still have to do the show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what piece of criticism has most stunned you? Stunned? Oh, oh, we were just kind of talking about this, weren't we? Um, was it... Well, we've had good, stunning criticism, like when mm-hmm. RuPaul came to see our show yeah. mm-hmm. and was just a shining beacon of light to us about uh-huh. how she thought we'd found our niche and, and we could do this for the rest of our lives. That was stunning in its so own... So, st- stung. I meant negative. Oh, stung! What, what bit of yeah. criticism has most hurt? Um, <laughs> I always get really, really hurt anytime someone has peeled away at my joke or something I've done on stage peeled away at it and peeled away at it until somehow I'm a racist in the end or somehow I've done something completely offensive to women, you know? And it's because, I mean, like, of course, call me out on it, but sometimes when you have to take something and peel so many elements away and then say, if you look at it through this lens and this angle and on this day and in the right lighting and blah, 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 there are people out there who want to dissect your work to find 
something that may not actually exist. And I feel so hurt by that because we put so much work into actually trying to consciously think, like, if we're going to go for offensive here, what's the point and what's the reason? And we've created these characters who are from the 20s, so maybe... They do have like these outdated ideas of oh, certain they're, they're things. Oh, they're both racist. You know, of course they're both racist. But I think what we do when we create like a, an offensive moment between the two of them or a racist moment, it's to satirize like the only people who should think this way are people who have been frozen alive from yeah, the 1920s. Course, yeah, mm-hmm. you know? I love that, love that beautiful joke, the, uh, the Jew joke. As someone who hasn't been through those parts of history, then yeah. she would be completely yeah, oblivious. oblivious. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I can't stand it when... Crit- I mean, like, it's some people's job, and, and there's social justice warriors out there, and that's what they do, is they try to expose injustice, you know? And I just, I, I feel like we work so hard to try to be subversive in, a, in an effective way that when people call us the enemy, that's when it really stings. I, do you feel that's happening more and more? Absolutely. You, because I, I, you're the first person to use the phrase social justice warrior as if it's a thing. I'm used to the idea that it's only, it's a name called, it's a thing that no, it's, it's the a thing. MRA people would call someone else. Pe- people, but it just starts to feel like it's a thing. People proudly call themselves so, uh, social justice warriors nowadays. But the thing is, I'm all for it. I'm all for it because there are people who absolutely need to be called out on their bullshit. A hundred percent. But I think we need to be very... I think we need to be a little bit more selective on who we're calling out because sometimes people attack people who have only ever tried to further the this movement of, of equality and, and justice for all. And like to forget that like when an artist does it on stage in a character that there's a reason for it. I mean if we were just doing a show that was just all racist jokes, you know, that would be one thing. But to have one little, like, element of a ra- There's a difference between a racist joke and a racially charged yeah, joke. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, like, I don't find Sarah Silverman to be racist at all because what she does is satirizes... She created a character that's so up her own ass that she says these things in a completely oblivious, like, doesn't even realize how offensive she's being kind of way. And I think that satire is to point out the only people who still believe this way and think this way are self-absorbed, arrogant assholes, you know? Like, to create a character that's a self-absorbed, arrogant asshole who's a racist says that's who racists are, self-absorbed, arrogant assholes. So, I don't know. I I want people to keep exposing these things, but I also want people to be a little bit more selective because I think... Now that it is a thing and it is a movement and a, a, and a righteous one, but some people just want to get on the bandwagon. So they just go looking for it anywhere they can to prove that, like, they know what's up. But to really know what's up is to discern between when someone's actually being a racist and when someone's satirizing and commenting on racism. And I know that it's such a gray line and it's such a tricky area, but it does sting when I feel like what my work is supposed to be doing is making the world a better place. And then people call me the problem 
you know, sometimes they're right and sometimes I think they're full of it, you know? <laughs> he wants short answers. And yeah, I know. No, 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 no. they, they, they use the duration of the answer is only just in terms of your time, not mine. I'll say, uh, as far as something that stings personally, you know, you talk about um, doing shows where you're supporting drag queens mm-hmm. on stage. The, the most stinging criticism is when you don't get mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. And on that same, the opposite the opposite side of that, the most satisfying thing for me that I do with this show in particular is people who come after after the show and say, you know, I came because I knew Jinx Monsoon off of television, but your talent was so, however, you know, it was equally affecting. That's mm-hmm. that's always an incredibly satisfying moment for me to know that I've added as much to the show for people who were there for someone else um, as the person they were there to see. Very last one then, and this can be quick or as, uh, as uh, take as long as you like. And I'm really glad we got onto that because I do I do think that's um, yeah. Like I feel like it's happening more and more. There's there's something happened recently with Stephen Fry, whereby yes, like you think he's yeah. the most liberal guy in the world. Why are we attacking Stephen Fry? Why well, are we no platforming Jermaine Greer and Peter Tatchell? Yeah, and and it was like Ellen DeGeneres um, when she made a joke about Liza Minnelli being a drag queen, mm-hmm. and then people jumped on her about being transphobic I'm like but everyone makes jokes about Liza Minnelli being a drag queen you know I think I think what happens sometimes and uh, you have to look at who's making the comment you have to uh, there is such a thing as context that and then you have to look at who's critiquing them and so you know the majority of people who want to come for me and say that I don't know what I'm talking about or I don't know what I'm doing on stage happen to be privileged white people and the people who were calling out Ellen DeGeneres for being transphobic many of the people who were first to say it were people who have a history of actually being transphobic you do have to look at a person's entire life and say okay has has Ellen earned you know the benefit of a doubt with a particular sentence has Stephen Fry earned the benefit of a doubt with something even if what they said was maybe even if it was uh, out of context sorry that's the social justice police in the back there it is (laughs) they're coming to get us even even if taken out of context that, that could have been offensive does everyone make a mistake? Have they, I think that's a really important point. Have they earned the benefit of the doubt? Yeah. yeah. Well, I the thing that, um, like, so many people who were the loudest to call Je- uh, Ellen DeGeneres transphobic were people who had a history of being called transphobic themselves because of things they had done in their own work. People, uh, and I can't even remember the names right now, but um, if you look at, like, if the person critiquing some other artist uh, if if they're a privileged white person you have to ask yourself at one point are they doing this just to prove that they are not racist mm-hmm. and i think that happens a lot nowadays mm-hmm. with these social justice warriors you know i'm less inclined to listen to a privileged white person call me out on racism because lots of times privileged white people will call out someone else as a racist to try to prove to everyone else in the world that they themselves aren't racist. I couldn't possibly be racist if I'm calling someone else out on their racism. But I think to just overlook the context and overlook the history of the artist that you're trying to red flag here, you know, makes you can't just call someone out on something. You have to actually be educated in what you're talking about. If you don't know what you're talking about, 
don't talk. <laughs> I think it's, we think we'd have a job convincing anybody on the internet or in the world that they don't know well, what we're talking about. Yeah, 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 well, absolutely. I think everybody. I think so many people now, particularly when when you mention trans issues. Because it, the the internet has accelerated the speed by which culture moves, mm. I think that trans issues are it's like watching homophobia exist, be called out, be dealt with, be confined in some hopefully you know, mm. and and people given a platform to speak out against it. That took many many years, mm. and now obviously trans issues have been going on for a long time, but they haven't had the visibility that's happening mm. now. That visibility is happening within bang like that. It's yeah. like the curve is exponential. Sorry, that's a great mime I've done. Yeah, yeah it was great. I'm and, but the, yeah, that curve has become exponential, mm-hmm. so we're all having to deal with where we stand on an issue and be confronted with yeah. it and be uh, accused of things and or no platformed and or uh, attacked so much faster and it's such a compressed amount of digital space than we've ever had to before and like uh, and I'll cite another example I I took a picture uh, once dressed as little Edie yep and I'm like flipping off the camera and since I was only playing little Edie I didn't have to be jinx at all I did my makeup like little Edie so I had a bunch of sunspots and I was I like um, made myself tanner because I was trying to look exactly like little Edie and I'm in a headscarf and so many people saw the picture and assumed that I was dressed as a as a Muslim in a in a hijab taking offensive photos for comedy and like half the people knew the context and tried to educate the other half the people and that's what I'm trying to say is like I want people to call out racism and transphobia and homophobia and and in just I want people to call those things out whenever they see it but first you need to make sure that that's actually what you're looking at you like if you s- truly see someone being um you know insensitive like before you say anything make sure you know exactly what they're doing what's wrong with it and what you want to say about it because i do believe Everyone has a right to their own opinion. All opinions are valid, but not all opinions are equal. So, like, a person who just found out what a trans person is, trying to call someone out on issues next to a person who is trans themselves or who has, like, worked in the area of trans issues for the last 10 years, your two opinions are not equal. Like, if you found out what a trans person is because of Caitlyn Jenner and this other person has worked with trans people for however many years you both have valid opinions but they are not equal and they're not equal on the scale of you know taking them seriously and i think the internet and social media it's given everyone this idea that everyone's opinion is so goddamn important and while your opinion is totally valid and and you know while everyone is entitled to their opinion no, not everyone's opinion is as important as the next person. Some people I would go to for their opinion on certain issues and then not ask them to tell me like what's f- f- tell me how to be funny, you know, yeah. because their opinion uh, on what's funny isn't the same as me, who's been working in comedy for the last 14 years. It's its own podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Um, I uh, 
I only I wonder if there is some element to which, and I'm sure there is, and I'm aware it's a, a big kettle of fish that I'm very <laughs> uneducated about. But is there a sort of a, an element through which drag queens are um, vilified by women for mocking the idea of femininity? Absolutely. This is not a question to bring up in the closing moments yeah. of the yeah. podcast. No, but that's a very good that's a very good point. Like. Um, there are people who would say that to be a drag queen is inherently misogynistic or inherently um, transphobic. You know, there's a lot of people who would say that, like, drag queens, you know, um, assuming that a handful of them out of drag identify as cisgendered males, you know, that that they can go to a place. I mean, we saw on Drag Race when they removed the word tranny from Drag Race mm-hmm. because it was offensive to some of its viewers. And the thing is, to assume that all drag queens are cisgendered males is just as offensive as a drag queen being transphobic, you know, because to assume that all drag queens live their life as men when they're not at, in drag is a hugely wrong assumption. And I I think to assume that all drag queens are misogynists ignores the fact that there are plenty of drag queens out there who are trans women. Trans women, transsexual women who had transitioned at, at whatever point in their life who still perform in drag. So, and then, like, there's me. I am not on the gender binary. I'm not a cisgendered male out of drag. So to assume that I'm a misogynist and that I'm transphobic just because I'm a drag queen is ignoring the fact that I have a right to my own gender in and out of drag. And I think that that's getting overlooked. You know, like we see one drag queen who's uneducated or one drag queen who thinks they're being subversive, but actually they're just being offensive Um, And then people want to say all drag queens are like that. And the fact that people haven't seen what's wrong with that, to look at one drag queen and judge all of us based on one drag queen's actions, the fact that people haven't realized that's just as bad as anything else that they're fighting for um, really shocks me. Because I see all the time social justice warriors saying down with drag because it's misogynistic. Right. down with drag because it's transphobic drag itself is not inherently misogynistic there are so many drag queens who only do drag because they're celebrating what they love about the female gender drag itself is not misogynistic or transphobic it's the artist so you need to judge every artist individually you can't judge drag the art form because of one artist that you saw you have to take it each artist at a time and you have to judge the individual for what they're doing not the art form <laughs> in a nutshell thanks guys yeah no thank problem you so thank you can we end on a high note ask like a really stupid funny question that couldn't possibly go down this route what would you have on your drag gravestone on my drag gravestone hmm um I was thinking about this recently like Maybe it would say, like, Jinx Monsoon. She sure tried, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Major? I always hoped it would be something along the lines of, uh, you know, wish you were here type. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was Jinx Monsoon and Richard, a.k.a. Dr. Dan, a.k.a. Major Scales. I do hope you will seek out their shows. I mean, Jinx's vocal delivery is exceptional. The comedy they put in the shows is brilliant, really vibrant, buzzy comedy. And if you're looking to expand your horizons and get a little bit into drag, then there is no finer place to start if you're a comedy fan or a fan of this podcast. So thank you very much to those guys for coming along. And, um, yes, info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to get in touch. Uh, uh, I am going to a number of exciting places soon, although one of them I'm freaking out because I haven't completed all the booking. Um, more on that, as and when. And, uh, and, and keep getting in touch. That's that for now. If you'd like to hang around, I'll do some waffling at you in a second. But for now, that concludes the podcast. Thanks for listening. The Edinburgh Show, of course, 3.45pm in the Liquid Rooms Annex daily throughout the festival from the first Saturday. See you there. Bring money. And what will we talk about today? Well, I'm standing here on uh, a wonderful floorboard. It's something, it's like something out of a Michael Jackson video or a Disney sort of thing. And I've just put um, put uh, foot marks all over it. That's not uh, ideal. We bought a, a, it's not lino, it's kind of foam floor. And it's sectional. It's like sort of jigsaw pieces that you put together so that the boy can roll around on him and practice his rolling. Um, without getting all grubby, apart from obviously the, the footmarks I've just put on it, um, and it's pretty good, but it's it's sectional and infinite, so we can keep buying them and eventually cover the entire house, which is always the sort of house I think I wanted to have when I was a kid. You know, when you imagine one day when I get my own place that's actually mine, you start to kind of uh, uh, imagine putting, you know, roto stack hamster tracks along every wall and a slide and all the rest of it, or maybe a bit of a bouncy floor is the nearest you can get. It might have dawned on you that I've got nothing to talk about. The news is so... Oh, God, it's so depressing. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm recording this now on uh, Friday morning, so this awful, awful uh, sniper business has happened in Dallas. These are more police murders in America. Um, And um, that's all going off. And, uh, I mean, there was was I thinking, God, it'd be nice to hear about something other than uh, Brexit and the Tory leadership race and all this horrific stuff. At least it's not Gove. At least it's not Gove. But, you know, it's like, at least it's not whoever the next one is. And then it's them. And then you go, let's get rid of them. And then someone more awful and hideous is in charge. Um, so I thank you for everyone that got uh, in touch with me and said supportive things about the Brexit rant from last last week's show. Um, but of course, there you are thinking, God, it'd be nice to hear about something else. And then you're reminded of all the other horrendous things happening in the world. And you just wish to clutch your loved ones to yourself that much more tightly. Um, I don't know that I've sort of racked up anything to say. I've got a lot on. <laughs> I've got a lot on. I've got, haven't we all got a lot on? Here's a thought. Here's a thought. Let's see if I if this goes anywhere and it's worth including. <laughs> you know, those are, you, you'd be amazed to find out that was my criterion. Um, for the first time ever, I have ignored a listener email. If it was you, I'm so sorry. If you're someone who feels like I've done this in the past, it was a mistake. If you're someone who's emailed the last two weeks and I've yet to get back to you, I may still get back to you. But there was one I've already filed. It's gone forever and I don't remember the name. And it was someone who was just asking for... It was a general query about... And if this was you, I'm so sorry. (laughs) You can at least hear the sort of tailspin it sent me into by way of an apology. I'm trying to, I try to contact you all and get back to you all and I try to, at the very least, like a tweet, which I think means that you reckon, you know that your tweet's been liked, even if I didn't have the time to reply to it. Maybe it doesn't even mean that. Someone emailed me with a very general, hey, love the show, um, 
what they may not even have said love the show i think they just said where can i see some previews what kind of venues can i go and see some stuff at and you know i just looked at it and i spent longer deciding look according to the rules of tim ferris i can just delete this i can just archive it and forget about it because this is not helping me and i can't help this person and they don't care and they probably sent that email to several people and uh and yet I want to connect with you listening to this now. I want to be able to, I want to commit to getting back to everyone. And I just for the first time went, oh, fuck it, archive. And, um, and clearly I spent more time on the decision at the time and talking to you about it now than it would have simply taken me to email back either sorry mate too busy, which I didn't dare do. It felt less rude to just not get black. Isn't that awful? Um, or to reply uh like to literally think for 30 seconds and put a reply i've just got a lot on so if you're that one mystery person who i could even dig out now from uh, from my gmail but i'm not going to do that um then you sort of don't have my apologies uh instead you were an interesting catalyst and i do try and get back to everyone i really do it's not like i'm completely inundated it's just that unless I reply to people, your emails sit there in my inbox going, yeah, don't get round to the TV pitch you need to be writing. Don't get round to fixing the Edinburgh show. Don't get round to booking that guest for LA Podfest um, because uh, you need to get back to some microscopic correspondence from someone who really is just reaching out and saying hi and oh, like, maybe, maybe from now on, if I get an email that I honestly can't help with, my rule of thumb will be that I simply write back, hi. That's a terrible idea because that means they'll email me back and reply. Well, listen, there is no solution. Thank you. I love it when you get in touch. Um, but if it can be as specific as possible, that would help me. And, uh, and you know, brevity's good too. But um, I love hearing from you. And uh, not apologies. <laughs> and anyway, there's a million of you I did get back to. So, um, so that's fine, right? God. There we go. That's what anxiety plus coffee plus get on and finish your show. A happier note to end on. Um, I I did a preview this week. I did a preview this week and I won't tell you which one because it was an excellent, excellent venue. And I don't want to make it sound like they're struggling when they're not. It's, it's been hit rather hard by the um, the closure of the timeout comedy section. But uh, as has everyone, I'm sure. But anyway, the point is venue X I did a gig to six punters and three comics, and bloody hell, it was an absolutely incredible preview. It was a really positive hour. Thank you to those of you that came. Thank you especially to the... to the, No, especially to the comics and especially to the audience, uh, two of whom were there because one of them saw me on Show Me the Funny six years ago. So it's the gift that keeps on giving in microscopic quantities. Um, but thank you. And it just made me think, look at that. Don't get too high and mighty... Stew and fellow comedians because it is absolutely possible to die in front of a hundred people and it's absolutely possible to have the, a whale of a time in front of six plus three pretend audience members slash comics. So that's a happier note. The Edinburgh show is in very good shape generally. The end still doesn't work but we'll get there. We'll all get there. Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs>